The French Revolution, A History, by Thomas Carlyle, Volume 3, The Guillotine, Book 1, September, Chapter 7, September in Argonne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Book 1, Chapter 7, September in Argonne. Plain at any rate is one thing, that the fear whatever of fear those aristocrat enemies might need, has been brought about. The matter is getting serious, then. Sanscolotism, too, has become a fact and seems minded to assert itself as such. This huge moon-calf of Sanscolotism staggering about, as young calves do, is not mockable only and soft like another calf, but terrible, too, if you prick it, and through its hideous nostrils blows fire, Aristocrats, with pale panic in their hearts, fly towards covert, and a light rises to them over several things, or rather a confused transition towards light, whereby for the moment darkness is only darker than ever. But what will become of this France? Here is a question. France is dancing its desert waltz as Sahara does when the winds waken, in whirl-blasts twenty-five million in number, waltzing towards town halls, aristocrat prisons and election committee rooms, towards Brunswick and the frontiers, towards a new chapter of universal history, if indeed it be not the finis and winding up of that. In election committee rooms there is now no dubiety, but the work goes bravely along. The convention is getting chosen, really in a decisive spirit. In the town hall we already date first year of the Republic. Some two hundred of our best legislators may be re-elected, the mountain bodily. Robespierre with Mère Pétion, Buzot, Curate Grégoire, Rabot, some three-score old constituents, though we once had only thirty voices. All these, and along with them, friends long known to revolutionary fame. Camille Desmoulins, though he stutters in speech, Manuel, Tallien and company, journalists Gossard, Carat, Messier, Louvet of Faublas, Clute, speaker of mankind, Collot, Desbois, tearing a passion to rags, Fabre d'Eglantine, speculative pamphleteer, Legendre, the solid butcher, nay Marat, though rural France can hardly believe it, or even believe that there is a Marat, except in print. Of Minister Danton, who will lay down his ministry for a membership, we need not speak. Paris is fervent, nor is the country wanting to itself. Barbaru, Rebecchi and fervid patriots are coming from Marseille. Seven hundred and forty-five men, or indeed forty-nine, for Avignon now sends four, are gathering. So many are to meet, not so many are to part. Attorney Carrière from Aurillac, ex-priest Le Bon from Arras, these shall both gain a name. Mountainous Auvergne re-elects her Rome, hardly tiller of the soil, once mathematical professor, who, unconscious, carries in petto a remarkable new calendar with Messidor, Pluviosa, and such like, and having given it well forth, shall depart by the death they call Roman. C.A. old constituent comes to make new constitutions, as many as wanted. For the rest, peering out of his clear, cautious eyes, he will cower low in many an emergency and find silence safest. 
Young Saint-Just is coming, deputed for Aisne in the north, more like a student than a senator, not four-and-twenty yet, who has written books. A youth of slight stature, with mild, mellow voice, enthusiast olive complexion, and long dark hair. Ferrault from the far valley Doire in the folds of the Pyrenees is coming, an ardent republican, doomed to fame, at least in death. All manner of patriot men are coming, teachers, husbandmen, priests and ex-priests, traders, doctors, above all talkers, or the attorney species. Men midwives, as Levasseur of the South, are not wanting, nor artists, Gross David, with the swollen cheek, has long painted with genius in a state of convulsion, and will now legislate. The swollen cheek, choking his words in the birth, totally disqualifies him as an orator, but his pencil, his head, his gross hot heart, with genius in a state of convulsion, will be there. A man bodily and mentally swollen-cheeked, disproportionate, flabby-large instead of great, weak withal as in a state of convulsion, not strong in a state of composure. So let him play his part. Nor are naturalised benefactors of the species forgotten. Priestly, elected by the Orn department, but declining. Payne, the rebellious needleman by the Pas de Calais, who accepts. Few nobles come, and yet not none. Paul Francois Barat, noble as the Barasses, old as the rocks of Provence, he is one. The reckless, shipwrecked man, flung ashore on the coast of the Maldives long ago while sailing and soldiering as Indian fighter, flung ashore since then as hungry Parisian pleasure hunter and half pay on many a Circe island with temporary enchantment, temporary conversion into beasthood and hoghood, the remote VAR department has now sent him hither. A man of heat and haste, defective in utterance, defective indeed in anything too utter, yet not without a certain rapidity of glance, a certain swift transient courage, who in these times, fortune favouring, may go far. He is tall, handsome to the eye, only the complexion a little yellow, but with a robe of purple with a scarlet cloak and plume of tricolour, on occasions of solemnity, the man will look well. Le Palettier Saint-Fageau, old constituent, is a kind of noble and of enormous wealth. He too has come hither, to have the pain of death abolished. Hapless ex-parliamentier. Nay, among our sixty old constituents, see Philip d'Orléans, a prince of the blood. Not now d'Orléans, for feudalism being swept from the world, he demands of his worthy friends, the electors of Paris, to have a new name of their choosing whereupon Procureur Manuel, like an antithetic literary man, recommends equality, égalité. A Philippe égalité, therefore, will sit, seen of the earth and heaven. Such a convention is gathering itself together. Mere angry poultry in malting season, whom Brunswick's grenadiers and cannoneers will give short account of, would the weather only mend a little. In vain, O oh Bertrand, the weather will not mend a whit, nay, even if it did. Dumurier Pallimatus, though Bertrand knows it not, started from brief slumber at Sedan on that morning on the 29th of August, with stealthiness, with promptitude, audacity. 
Some three mornings after that, Brunswick, opening wide eyes, perceives the passes of the Argonne all seized, blocked with felled trees, fortified with camps, and that it is a most shifty, swift Dumouriez this who has outwitted him. The manoeuvre may cost Brunswick a loss of three weeks, very fatal in these circumstances. A mountain wall of forty miles lying between him and Paris, which he should have preoccupied, which how now to get possession of? Also the rain, it raineth every day, and we are in a hungry champagne poilures, a land flowing only with ditch water. How to cross this mountain wall of the Argonne, and what in the world to do with it? There are marchings and wet splashings by steep paths, with sacraments and guttural interjections, forcings of Argonne passes, which unhappily will not force. Through the woods volleying war reverberates, like huge gong music or Moloch's kettle drum, borne by the echoes, swollen torrents boil angrily round the foot of rocks, floating pale carcasses of men. In vain, Ilet village with its church steeple rises intact in the mountain pass between the embosoming heights. Your forced marchings and climbings have become forced slidings and tumblings back. From the hilltops thou seest nothing but dumb crags and endless wet moaning woods, the Clermont Vache, huge cow that she is, disclosing herself at intervals, flinging off her cloud blanket and soon taking it on again, drowned in the pouring heaven. The Argonne passes will not force, you must skirt the Argonne, go round by the end of it. But fancy whether the emigrant seigneurs have not got their brilliancy dulled a little, whether that foot regiment in red facings with nankeen trousers could be in field day order. In place of gasconading, a sort of desperation and hydrophobia from excess of water is threatening to supervene. Young Prince de Lagne, son of that brave literary de Lagne, the thunder god of dandies, fell backwards, shot dead in Grand Pre, the northmost of the passes. Brunswick is skirting and rounding laboriously by the extremity of the south. Four days, days of a rain as of Noah, without fire, without food. For fire you cut down green trees and produce smoke. For food you eat green grapes and produce colic, pestilential dysentery, holocotto delay. And the peasants assassinate us, they do not join us. Shrill women cry shame on us, threaten to draw their very scissors on us. O oh, ye hapless, dull, bright seigneurs and hydrophobic, splashed nankeens, but, oh, ten times more, ye poor, sacramenting, ghastly-visaged hessians and hulands fallen on your backs, who had no call to die there except compulsion and three halfpence a day. Nor has Mrs. Leblanc of the Golden Arm a good time of it in her bower of dripping rushes. Assassinating peasants are hanged, old constituent honourable members, though of venerable age, ride in carts with their hands tied. These are the woes of war. Thus they, sprawling and wriggling far and wide on the slopes and passes of the Argonne, are lost to Brunswick of five-and-twenty disastrous days. There is wriggling and struggling, 
facing, backing and right about facing as the positions shift and the Argonne gets partly rounded, partly forced, but still Du Maurier, force him round him as you will, sticks like a rooted fixture on the ground, fixture with many hinges, wheeling now this way, now that, showing always new front in the most unexpected manner, nowise consenting to take himself away. Recruits stream up on him, full of heart, yet rather difficult to deal with. Behind Grand Pre, for example, Grand Pre, which is on the wrong side of the Argonne, for we are now forced and rounded, the full heart in one of those wheelings and showings of new front did, as it were, overset itself, as full hearts are liable to do, and there rose a shriek of Suave qui peur, and a death panic which had nigh ruined all so that the general had to come galloping and with thunder words, with gesture, stroke of drawn sword even, check and rally, and bring back the sense of shame, nay, to seize the first shriekers and ringleaders, shave their heads and eyebrows, and pack them forth into the world as a sign. Thus too, for really the rations are short, and wet camping with hungry stomach brings bad humour, there is like to be mutiny. Whereupon again Dumouriez arrives at the head of their line with his staff and an escort of a hundred hussars. He had placed some squadrons behind them, the artillery in front. He said to them, As for you, for I will neither call you citizens nor soldiers nor my men, ni mes enfants, you see before you this artillery, behind you this cavalry. You have dishonoured yourselves by crimes. If you amend and grow to behave like this brave army which you have the honour of belonging to, you will find in me a good father, but plunderers and assassins I do not suffer here. At the smallest mutiny I'll have you shivered in pieces, hachet en pièce. Seek out the scoundrels that are among you and dismiss them yourselves. I hold you responsible for them. Patience, old Dumouriez. This uncertain heap of shriekers, mutineers, were they once drilled and inured, will become a phalanxed mass of fighters, and wheel and whirl to order, swiftly like the wind or the whirlwind, tanned mustachio figures, often barefoot, even bare-backed, with sinews of iron, who require only bread and gunpowder, very sons of fire, the adroitest, hastiest, hottest ever seen, perhaps, since Attila's time. They may conquer and overrun amazingly, much as that same Attila did, whose Attila's camp and battlefield thou now seest on this very ground, who, after sweeping bare the world, was with difficulty and days of tough fighting, checked here by Roman Aetius and fortune, and his dust-cloud made to vanish in the east again. Strangely enough, in this shrieking confusion of a soldiery, which we saw long since fallen all suicidally out of square in suicidal collision, at Nancy or on the streets of Metz where brave Bouillet stood with drawn sword, and which has collided and ground itself to pieces worse and worse ever since, down now to such a state in this shrieking confusion and not elsewhere, lies the first germ of returning order for France. Round which we say, poor France, nearly all ground down suicidally likewise into rubbish and chaos, will be glad to rally, to begin growing and new shaping her inorganic dust. Very slowly, through centuries, through Napoleons, Louis-Philippe's and other the like media and phases, into a new, infinitely preferable France, we can hope.
These wheelings and movements in the region of the Argonne, which are all faithfully described by Dumouriez himself, and more interesting to us than Hoyle's or Philidor's best game of chess, let us nevertheless, O reader, entirely omit, and hasten to remark two things. The first a minute private, the second a large public thing. Our minute private thing is the presence in the Prussian host, in that war game of the Argonne, of a certain man belonging to the sort called Immortal, who in days since then is becoming visible more and more in that character as the transitory more and more vanishes, for from of old it was remarked that when the gods appear among men it is seldom in recognisable shape. Thus Admetus's neat herds give Apollo a draught of their goatskin weigh-bottle, well, if they do not give him strokes with their ox-rungs, not dreaming that he is the sun-god. This man's name is Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. He is Herzog Weimar's minister, come with the small contingent of Weimar to do insignificant unmilitary duty here, very irrecognisable to nearly all. He stands at present with drawn bridle on the height near St. Menahoud, making an experiment on the cannon fever, having ridden thither against persuasion into the dance and firing of the cannon-balls, with a scientific desire to understand what that same cannon fever may be. The sound of them, says he, is curious enough, as if it were compounded of the humming of tops, the gurgling of water, and the whistle of birds. By degree you get a very uncommon sensation, which can only be described by similitude. It seems as if you were in some place extremely hot, and at the same time were completely penetrated by the heat of it, so that you feel as if you and this element you are in were perfectly on a par. The eyesight loses nothing of its strength or distinctness, and yet it is as if all things had got a kind of brown-red colour, which makes the situation and the object still more impressive on you. This is the cannon fever, as the world poet feels it. A man entirely irrecognisable, in whose irrecognisable head, meanwhile, there verily is the spiritual counterpart, and call it complement, of this same huge death-birth of the world, which now effectuates itself outwardly in the Argonne in such cannon thunder, inwardly in the irrecognisable head, quite otherwise than by thunder. Mark that man, O reader, as the memorablest of all the memorable in this Argonne campaign. What we say of him is not dream nor flourish of rhetoric, but scientific historic fact, as many men now at this distance see or begin to see. But the large public thing we had to remark is this that the twentieth of september seventeen ninety two was a raw morning covered with mist that from three in the morning St. Menahou and those villages and homesteads we know of old were stirred by the rumble of artillery wagons, by the clatter of hoofs and many-footed tramp of men, all manner of military, patriot and Prussian, taking up positions on the heights of La Lune and other heights, shifting and shoving, seemingly in some dread chess game, which may the heavens turn to good. The miller of Valmy has fled dusty underground. His mill, were it never so windy, will have rest to-day. At seven in the morning, the mist clears off. See Kellerman, Dumouriez's second in command, with eighteen pieces of cannon and deep serried ranks drawn up round that same silent windmill on his knoll of strength. 
Brunswick also with serried ranks and cannon, glooming over to him from the height of La Lune, only the little brook and its little dell now parting them, so that the much longed for has come at last. Instead of hunger and dysentery we shall have sharp shot, and then Dumouriez, with force and firm front, looks on from a neighbouring height, can help only with his wishes in silence. Lo, the eighteen pieces do bluster and bark, responsive to the bluster of La Lune, and thunder-clouds mount into the air, and echoes roar through all dells, far into the depths of Argonne wood, deserted now, and limbs and lives of men fly, dissipated, this way and that. Can Brunswick make an impression on them? The dull bright seigneurs stand biting their thumbs. These sans-culottes seem not to fly like poultry. Towards noontide a cannon-shot blows Kellerman's horse from under him. There bursts a powder-cart high into the air, with knell heard over all, some swaggering and swaying observable. Brunswick will try. Camarades, cries Kellerman, vive la patrie, allons vaincre pour elle, let us conquer. Live the fatherland, rings responsive to the welcome, like rolling fire from side to side. Our ranks are as firm as rocks, and Brunswick may recross the dell, ineffectual, regain his old position on La Lune, not unbattered by the way. And so, for the length of a September day, with bluster and bark, with bellow far echoing, the cannonade lasts till sunset, and no impression made. Till an hour after sunset, the few remaining clocks of the district striking seven at this late time of day, Brunswick tries again. With not a whit better fortune, he is met by rock ranks, by shouts of Viva la patrie, and driven back, not unbattered. Whereupon he ceases, retires to the tavern of La Lune, and sets to raising a redoubt, lest he be attacked. Verily so, ye dulled bright seigneurs, make of it what ye may. Ah, and France does not rise round us in mass, and the peasants do not join us, but assassinate us, neither hanging nor any persuasion will induce them. They have lost their old distinguishing love of king and king's cloak, I fear, altogether, and will even fight to be rid of it. That seems now their humour. Nor does Austria prosper, nor the siege of Thionville. The Thionvilles, carrying their insolence to the epigrammatic pitch, have put a wooden horse on their walls, with a bundle of hay hung from him, and this inscription, When I finish my hay, you will take Thionville. To such height has the frenzy of mankind risen. The trenches of Thionville may shut, and what though those of Lee are open? The earth smiles not on us, nor the heaven, but weeps and blears itself in sour rain and worse. Our very friends insult us. We are wounded in the house of our friends. His Majesty of Prussia had a great coat when the rain came, and, contrary to all known laws, he put it on, though our two French princes, the hope of their country, had none. To which, indeed, as Goethe admits, what answer could be made? Cold and hunger and affront, colic and dysentery and death, and we here cowering redoubted, most unredoubtable, amid the tattered corn-shocks and deformed stubble on the splashy heights of La Lune, round the mean tavern de La Lune. This is the cannonade of Valmy, wherein the world-poet experimented on the cannon-fever. 
wherein the French sans-culottes did not fly like poultry. Precious to France, every soldier did his duty, and Alsacian Kellerman, how preferable to old Luckner the dismissed, began to become greater, and Egalité Fils, Equality Junior, a light gallant field officer, distinguished himself by intrepidity. It is the same intrepid individual who now, as Louis-Philippe, without the equality, struggles under sad circumstances to be called King of the French for a season. End of Book One, Chapter Seven